Hello and welcome to Empty Seats. This is a weekly podcast where we get together, we talk fantasy, horror, superhero, and science fiction shows and movies. This week we are going to be beginning our review of the HBO series The Outsider. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Tom. How are you this afternoon or tonight? I am well. It was a, um, a roller coaster week. Yeah. With uh, ups and downs, but the week is over. And um, I actually, this is one of those weeks where I'm, I'm going to be glad to be at home and then watching a big football game that'll be played on Sunday. And yes. um, there's well, a little like, thing, Super Bowl happening Sunday. That's right. <laughs> I know. This is one of those years where I'm actually really looking forward to it. So I'm hoping these teams will completely surprise everybody and it'll be a, just one of these great games. Yeah, so do you have a favorite or or do you have or who do you think's going to win? I after watching what the way San Francisco won those games, I think that I can see a pathway to them winning mm-hmm. more so than I can see Mahomes slinging it all over the park and winning. Um their defense and the lines on both sides of the ball for the Niners are so strong. And if they get a lead and their offensive coordinator does not lose his mind, in other words, he road grades and plows his way down the field with his running game like he did against every other team in the playoffs, it's going to be really hard for the for the Chiefs to beat the Niners. Um Having said that, would I be shocked if it was a coming out party? Well, you can't have a coming out party for Mahomes because everybody already believes he's the best quarterback in the in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you think? I, I think it's more likely than not the Niners would win, but what do you think? Yeah, so I'm actually really undecided on who I think is going to win because they just they match up pretty well with each other. Uh, the, San Francisco is supposed to have one of the fastest defenses in the league, and KC is supposed to have one of the fastest offenses in the league. I mean, Patrick Holmes is a great running quarterback, but he also has an amazing arm. Um, I could see, I could see one of two things happen. It's either just a slugfest, and neither team can really score the ball, and they just bring it down into the trenches. In which case, San Francisco should have the edge because their running game is is much better, as they showed uh, against the Packers. Although the Packers were a pretty flawed team. Yeah. Uh, KC, I mean, they have the best offense. Uh, in the league, besides, I would, you know, you would have said Baltimore, but then Baltimore got dismantled by Tennessee. So you'd have to think it's KC, but it's an Andy Reid offense, and Andy Reid offenses are always really good until you get to the playoffs or until you get to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be a really interesting, like dilemma to see if Andy Reid can get over the hump and actually win his first Super Bowl, which is seems to be something of a curse where his teams will do really well in the regular seasons, then fall apart in the postseason or the Super Bowl. So it's it's going to be really interesting. If I had to choose, though, I would actually take KC. I think it's just so hard to stop that offense. They have so many different weapons, and they are just so fast. Mm-hmm. It's really going to be whether or not you can get pressure on Mahomes and get him on the ground. Uh, and then for the Niners, it's if you stop the running game, then you force uh, Jimmy Garoppolo to have to throw the ball, which he only threw the ball eight times last or two weeks ago. So you need you need an untested not rookie but essentially a rookie quarterback uh, win the game for you and so that's why I think overall I think that the the Casey's gonna win probably 
Yeah, I mean, now that you put it that way, you're, if the Kansas City's defense puts the game in Garoppolo's hands, I think that's the way the Chiefs win it. If they if they can do it, it's one thing to have a plan to do it. It's another thing to actually pull it off. If they do pull it off, I'll take uh, Mahomes over Garoppolo in a sl- in a sling fast. Um, I haven't seen a team, and I feel like these other teams could have done that as well. Minnesota had a good defense. They had some really good defensive linemen. Mm-hmm. They have one of the best linebackers in the league, and they didn't slow down the running game at all. Um, now, they had a flawed secondary, though, and they were always kind of off kilter because Garoppolo could hit these timely passes down the seam and down the middle of the field and kind of tear apart the Viking defense. Um, I don't think that that... Well, I don't know as much. What's the Kansas City secondary look like? Um, I honestly couldn't really tell you. I know they have Tyron Matthew. Uh, I unless I'm thinking he's on the Niners, but I think I'm pretty sure that's it. Who? I mean, Tyron Matthew was pretty good, and he was a Pro Bowler in Arizona, so he's really good. But it's either him. I think he had like a like a leg injury, like an ACL tear or something. But he's back and he's strong. And I, I don't think their secondary is, is is as good as their front seven, which mm-hmm. is. But they've been able to get some pretty good pressure over the last couple of weeks. And I just remember there's an old football player named Charles Suggs who got cut and he wanted the Ravens to sign him and they didn't sign him. And so KC signed him. And he is, I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer, but he's, he's really close as a defensive end or outside linebacker. And he's really helped their off their defense being able to, to rush mm-hmm. the passer. And so really, I mean, that's, that's how that's how it goes down. If you can get to the quarterback with your front seven or your just your four down linemen, then you have a really good chance to win the game, especially in this day and age when the quarterback pretty much move, is is the whole engine for your offense. Yeah. So it's gonna be interesting, and yeah. I think Casey just has the better offense and a good enough defense to be able to get it done. It's really gonna come down to whether or not Jimmy G can throw can get make the throws and not throw too many interceptions, and whether or not you can make Mahomes as, as uncomfortable as possible. Okay. And on the flip side of the of that scenario, I would say that it'll come down to Kansas City's um, number one off against, offense against the Niners' one, number one defense, which can put pressure on any quarterback and then has the secondary to clean up whatever mistakes are made. I think on offense, the Niners have a really powerful running game that hasn't been stopped, even though every team in the league has knowing that that's exactly what you need to do. They mm-hmm. still haven't been able to do it. I think that it's going to be hard for Kansas City to stop that. And I think that one more mistake will be made on the KC side than the Niners side, and the Niners will win. Um, it's not where my heart is. That's where my head is. My heart is with the Chiefs. Hmm. I want the Chief. Yeah. See, that's funny because I'm the opposite because I got some friends who are really good Niners fans, so I guess I saw I'd be rude. My heart is kind of with the Niners. Um, I'm still kind of mad how they screwed us over, the Bears over with the Mitchell Trubisky trade. But oh, overall, I'd be really happy if San Francisco can bring a championship home. And KC hasn't won in 50-something years, though. So, I mean, I really wouldn't be upset with it, with whomever won. Yeah. So, we do have a, a big game to mm-hmm. watch this Sunday. But we have been watching a show that has been making a splash. This is... Uh, the Outsider, which is an HBO show based off a Stephen King book and a made-for-TV script written by Richard Price. 
Mm-hmm. Um, looks like the directors for six of the episodes uh, is Andrew Bernstein. Uh, Jason Bateman actually is a director on two mm-hmm. of the episodes. And Charlotte Brandstorm is a directed one of these episodes. We start getting into the cast. We have Yule Vasquez as Eunice. Ben Mendelsohn, one of my favorite actors, as Ralph. Jeremy Bob as Alec. Julian Nicholson as Glory. Uh, Jason Bateman as Terry. Mark Manchaka as Jack. Cynthia Revo as Holly. She's an outside investigator. And then Duncan E. Clark shows up in the form of a body as Frank, <laughs> the young child. Sorry. That was dark humor. <clears throat> so this story, should I kick into the story right away, Eric, or do we want to comment a little bit on the directors, writers, and actors? Um, yeah, I mean, just the, the series premiere on HBO, uh, I think about a month ago, the first night it premiered the first two episodes, in which I'm fairly certain Jason Bateman directed the first two episodes. Uh, so that kind of gets to set the stage and... It's kind of the episode that we're going to be talking about because we're definitely because we're just talking about episode one today. So you just kind of talk about his, you know, how he directed the film, how we or the show, and how he thought about it. And then, um, yeah, that's about it. I think yeah. uh, let's get into the summary then afterwards, unless you have any. Uh, I mean, one plug I'll make is for Ben Mendelsohn. I know he doesn't need plugging. Um, <laughs> people love this actor. Um, for those of you that don't know who he is, he was in this this. Um, Net made for Netflix three season crime drama with uh head football coach from Friday Night Lights Kyle Long. <laughs> I can't remember his name now. What's the name of the the actor who was um he um he's in Godzilla the last Godzilla film. He's yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um, I don't know his name. I just know him from TV shows and yeah. movies. His name is not Kyle Long, by the way. Um, I just made that up. Um, Kyle Long's an offensive lineman for the Bears, or, or used to be before he retired. Yeah, <laughs> that's you know that's where the brain goes sometimes. But um, he also so there's I think it was called Blood something, and that was a really good series. He was also in Rogue One. Um, he's in a lot of stuff. He plays a good kind of slimy, crafty guy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily his character in this one. He's a police officer in this one. Um, but I just kind of a plug for him. I, I think that when he shows up, he brings instant credibility to the role. Mm-hmm. And Jason Bateman, I really like him in this too. And I've only watched one episode, but I think that he totally carries his portion of the story. And I think he plays a tortured um, father pretty well too. At least he did in this. Yeah, you know, and it kind of started with that show on Netflix called Ozarks, um, in which he, in which he basically became a drug dealer in in the Ozarks, and it was really his first, one of his first turns to really becoming more of a dramatic actor, which is good to see that he can actually kind of um, succeed and prosper as that in doing that. And I don't know if he directed any of the episodes in the Ozarks, but I think he, I think he did, but. If not, then this would definitely be one of his first directorial debuts, and I think he did a really good job for the first two episodes, and I would agree with Ben Mendelsohn. I mean, the first time I saw him was with Rogue One, and I thought he was an amazing bad guy, and so when I saw him in this, I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll watch just about anything with him in it. He actually kind of reminds me of um, Christoph Waltz. Okay. He kind of has the same roles, 
And I don't know, Christoph Waltz kind of gets all the AAA movies, while Ben Mendelsohn actually gets like the good parts and the kind of not so well known uh, movies and shows. So Kyle Chandler is the Friday Night Lights coach. So I got Kyle right. Um, everything else was way off. Um, hmm. And I do want to look up real quick and see the name of that Netflix original show because it was actually a really good show, and I want to plug it, even though, you know, we don't have any sponsorship. Bloodline is what it's called. I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, that is. If you like these kind of greasy crime dramas, uh, Bloodline will touch every nerve in the right way. And that's got Kyle Chandler, Ben Mendelsohn, and a, and a host of others. <laughs> um, that's a really good show. But this show here is The Outsider. It's a true detective-style horror, murder, mystery show, and it's set in a suburb of Atlanta. It feels very suburban and rural in that way. A gruesome murder of a boy named Frankie leads to the arrest of a popular, popular Little League baseball coach played by Jason Bateman. Evidence points to supernatural, if not foul play. But how can the main suspect be in two places at one time? The story unfolds, sliding towards the supernatural in bone-chilling ways while remaining grounded as the mystery unfolds for the viewer. I wrote that, Eric. <laughs> really, it definitely sounds like the back page of a uh, Stephen King novel for sure. Does it? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I think that was my proudest moment as a podcaster. <laughs> and then, I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty much the the synopsis in a in, in a in a barrel, which is um mm-hmm. actually the name of this episode is is fish in a barrel, and it's because the uh, murder of this child seems to be a pretty open and shut case with uh, having people think it's Jason Bateman's character, who's uh, Terry Terry Mateliff, I think is his last name. Mm-hmm. Um, all the evidence they have, you know, the first, so the first part of the show of, of the episode really is all about Ralph, uh, or Ben Mendelsohn's character. He's just going around doing his detective stuff and it's, it's, it's a pretty, uh, quiet and dark tone that the show has mm-hmm. and it has these really like nice little cinematic shots, which is why when I was watching it, I was like, this is just their excuse to make true detective season four. Which it, it's almost it is almost the exact same like style of show in which they try and do a detective show. Um, the only difference is, is that because you know it's a Stephen King film, you know it's it's gonna get weird at some point, and mm-hmm. it's gonna start not being grounded in reality anymore. Um, but I think that is what the purpose of this episode and the ne- the next episode was was to really ground the show in reality in present day because it is just. Um, Ralph going around being a detective, getting eyewitness reports, collecting evidence, and building this case against Terry. And then I'm pretty sure the episode either ends or comes close to ending after he actually arrests Terry in the middle of one of these baseball games and kind of showing him the evidence and basically trying to get Terry to plead guilty to it before all the evidence comes out that it's all the contradictory evidence comes out that maybe Terry didn't actually do it, or how could he have done it if he was in two places at one time? And, um, yeah, I think the, the pacing of this show is really good so far. Uh, the way that they build things up, the way that they reveal evidence, and they show different um, kind of the way that characters interact, I think it, it's done really well. 
Mm-hmm. And then the way they bring um, outside characters, like first they bring in the GBI, which is the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and they bring in the Attorney General, and they bring in um, Terry Maitliff's attorney, and uh, pretty good characters for the most part. And yeah, I think so far it's been handled very well. Yeah. One thing I wanted to circle back to is something that you said, and it was also stated by Stephen King in an, in an interview he did in promoting the show. And just the importance of creating a context that is that feels real and that feels textured for the viewer so that when the supernatural things come along, they are more believable. Um, so you need these relatable moments. And episode one is all about relatability. It's, you know, a father making breakfast for his kids and talking to his wife before they go out. They're discussing happenings that have been going on. It's just kind of the everyday life stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's needed because when you transition over to the supernatural, that's actually a really hard transition for Stephen King stories, in my opinion. Um, I think he does a really good job creating um, the, the universe or the kind of the outer context. And then what starts to struggle sometimes and which doesn't always translate to the TV screen or the movie screen very well is the transition to the the horrific supernatural. <laughs> and at least in the first episode, and I haven't watched any of the other ones yet, you you know that something is not quite right. Spoilers. This is major spoilers if you haven't watched it already. Um, actually, I hesitate to spoil this. Um <laughs> Let's just say, I won't spoil it, let's just say that you would think with video evidence and DNA evidence what it is today, and they do go through that in episode one, all the DNA evidence that ties Terry to the crime scene and to the victim, that it would be an open and shut guilty case. But some other evidence comes to light, and I won't share what it is because I want viewers to be able to go back and watch it, I don't want to spoil it that puts that into question and that's the only reason why i bring supernatural into it right <laughs> and i'll leave it at that um but they need to have some kind of um introduction to this world where we get to know these people as people and that this is a normal everyday life and everyday occurrence as far as how they're living their life that day until the point when terry is arrested um, mm-hmm. before that though, you know, it's not every day that you find a Frankie, a little boy's body in, in the, in the woods either. Um, so that doesn't feel like an everyday life occurrence either. Um, <laughs> obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think that's what you got to do with yeah. any show like this where you want to have it be set in, you know, present day or reality is you got to show the characters to set them up and then you got to show them in real life settings and, when I was watching uh, the introduction of Terry Maitliff with his family, like he's cooking pancakes for his daughters, and it's it actually is almost like exactly how the opening scene of World War Z goes, in which Brad Pitt's cooking breakfast for his daughters, and mm-hmm. it's just you know it's basically uh, the scene just just to show that he's a really good dad, and he's a really good guy, and and then when I, as I'm watching it, I'm just like I can totally see how they adapt adapted this from a novel in which everything seems fine and then it's like a pretty it's a pretty straightforward like crime novel or crime case 
and then slowly you start throwing in the extra bits. And if this was like a Tom Clancy type novel or, you know, something like that, then maybe instead of having it be supernatural, it would be more like corruption or uh, Terry was framed by the, you know, the man or something like that. Mm-hmm. But because you know that it's a Stephen King novel, you, your mind instantly starts going to, oh, it's aliens. Oh, it's, you know, ghosts. Oh, it's demons. Oh, it's this or that or whatever. Good and point. I think for the as we're recording this episode, I believe the fourth or fifth episode came out today, actually. And so the, you like I've seen all the episodes. So I, I have a I think I have a little bit better direction of what the what the big bad you know boogeyman is compared to what maybe you have, right. um, and what the supernatural elements are. And that's actually the the really the fun part is not trying to uh, solve the murder, but trying to solve what happened and how. Uh, Terry Maitland either wound up killing this kid or wound up not killing the kid. And if he didn't, then how is there so much evidence linking him? Because they have him with four direct eyewitnesses basically putting him with the van that was used to transport the boy um, like with blood all over his clothes and they you know they got they got him on video surveillance in like two or three separate places like you're right it's it's in it's as open and shut a case as it can get but as uh ralph care as ralph even says he says like are you are you tr- it's like he's trying to get caught which clearly he is because clearly there's something else going on and so really what this episode's main purpose was to set up the world set up that it's in reality and that's and then set up that really bad stuff is happening and um i think it does an excellent job of doing that and yeah i yeah I, if you it, it really well, hooked you, me to the show yeah it's definitely a hook do you uh, listen to or get into a lot of these csi crime either podcasts or shows no because it all became pretty um similar like i used to watch a csi for like a month or so and then i realized every episode was the exact same like like house used to be a show i loved and then i realized that every episode was exactly the same and mm-hmm. so i got kind of bored with it and started looking for other shows okay so shameless plug, I religiously listen to this podcast called Real Crime Profile, mm-hmm. and it's got a an expert in domestic violence who also worked for New Scotland Yards um, as an investigator and as a um, maybe not as an investigator. I think she was a psychi- psychologist um, that worked with the team, uh, a, a former FBI behavioral analyst and investigator. And then the um, Criminal Minds, the um, individual that does the casting and crewing for and putting putting the cast together for Criminal Minds. And so when you listen to all the evidence, like eyewitness evidence is unreliable, according Mm -hmm. to these experts. So that alone, a lot of times when you see TV shows, they have eyewitness Mm-hmm. And that's like the thing that has them guilty. But that's not really the strongest evidence. The video evidence is evidence, but it's also not the strongest evidence. What is the strongest evidence is the DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. When you have his DNA and then the blood in the van and on, you know, like that is crim- that is that is incriminating to say the least right (laughs) and so i think the show does a good job of layering layering that they don't just stop at eyewitness (laughs) they don't just stop at video they also go to the dna and i thought that was impressive 
um, it's when you start to think about the behavioral sophistication it would take for an individual to try and do what he did, mm-hmm. it would be people have to have a really high crim- criminal IQ to pull that off. And some people do. And unfortunately, there are serial killers out there that do. And this is just me pontificating based off this podcast that I, that I listen to a lot. And what I like about this is they they track it down that path until you like even the most critical viewer uh, who who's listened to podcasts and watched some shows mm-hmm. will say, you know what, this looks like this dude's guilty. And then just to keep it a surprise, like something else starts to surface and you start to realize that there's something else that could be going on here. But one thing that I also want to circle back to what you said, Eric, which I really think is important is I'm assuming a lot because this is a Stephen King property. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, if this were, you know, Billy Green, you know, I don't think there's an author named Billy Green, but (laughs) if there is, I'm sorry. Um, It'd be like, oh, wow, you know, this is a nice little murder mystery. But because it's Stephen King, I'm expecting something fantastic, supernatural or horrific to come along. (laughs) No, I mean, another boy. I mean, I think the one story that comes to mind is the story of it in which, you know, small children are killed in this small town and. It, that also has itself. I mean, the answer to that one was essentially aliens, and because uh, Pennywise is a, is like a, a extraterrestrial being from like another dimension, something like that. Um, if this was True Detective, then they wouldn't have given you all this evidence on the first episode. Also, in mm. which it's at the end of the first episode, and you're like, all right, well, you know, Jason Bateman is clearly guilty from all this all this evidence, but it's the first episode, and it's a Stephen King show. So the question is, how are they going to be able to twist it so that it's maybe he's actually not guilty? Um, and then is that going to be a ruse in and of itself in which he actually is guilty, but they're just throwing us off? And so that's, like I said, that's the fun part of these shows is you get to figure it out as it goes on. And that's also why it's good that it's an HBO show that uh, comes out one episode a week. Where because then you get to watch the episode, see whatever new uh, evidence or something new they uncover, and then you get to spend the whole week kind of thinking about it and talking about it, and then slowly, you know, the story will get re- will get resolved over the span of a couple months, as opposed to if it was on Netflix and it all comes out one night, and I could watch literally the entire show in eight hours and then just be done. Yeah. And it's it's a, it, you know sometimes that instant gratification is nice, but when it's a show like this, it's I think it's better to do it this way, and that's yeah. I mean mm-hmm. at the at the end of episode one, it's like it's there is almost no without any other extra information, you would assume that he did it, that he murdered the boy, and you just the only real question is is why did he do it? And I mean that's the thing is. Sometimes I was thinking, like, oh, he's in a fugue state, or he's possessed by a demon, or he was kidnapped by an alien or something like that, or it's a clone. And then you eventually you get to use process of elimination and figure it out. Yeah. So that's that's what's got us kind of hooked as far as story and narrative-wise. When you mm-hmm. think of the, the visual aesthetic and kind of the way they film this, does it stand out for you in any way? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it reminds me a lot of True, True Detective, and a lot of it's because it's shot very similarly. It looks very much the same, and 
it's also takes place in the South and, you know, season one of true detective was in the Bayou of Louisiana and season four, I think was, or season three was pretty much in the same area. I think it was only season two that went to LA, but it, so it has that really like not, not dirty look, but just, it's not very high tech and futuristic where if you watch like a CSI episode, they use all the fancy gadgets and then have all the bright lights and all the, you know, the, the full hazmat suits. And it looks very fancy and very expensive. And this doesn't seem that way. It's grounded mm-hmm. with Ben Mendelsohn's character where he is just a detective who is going through grief of his own over um, the loss of his uh, son. His son died of cancer. I think it was like a year ago or a couple years before this episode for the show starts. So he's going through his own, he has his own personal demons, which gives him some, some character and just him just doing the, the ground, the footwork. He goes around, talks to people. He gets, he gathers information. I mean, there's one where he talks to a little girl and the little girl saw, uh, Terry Maitliff, you know, walking out of the woods with blood all over his mouth and then get into the van. And they even show the cutscene where the girls just walk around the park and then he sees Terry Maylive and Terry Maylive just stops. And for a second, you're just like, oh, Terry's totally going to kill this kid. Um, yeah. But then he does. He just keeps walking. So, I mean, it's it, it's the way that episode, it's a really well put together episode, especially for a first episode. That, that's what you want. And it sets up all the characters really well. It kind of sets the town up and it takes you to all the relevant areas. Like there's a strip club in the town that Terry Maitland uh, goes to after he murders the boy, and <clears throat> he's caught on film there. And it's good because it sets up the owner of the strip club, and it allows us to go back to that area uh, three or four more times already. And so, yeah, it just – and then I guess the other part we haven't really touched is uh, the the family dynamics. So Terry Maitland has his family with his daughters and his wife, and they're living the pretty – Pretty um, picturesque American dream, essentially. Ralph has his wife, and he lost his son, but he still has something of a family. And then the other family that they show is the family of the boy who was murdered. So his name's Frankie Peterson, so it's a Peterson family. And they're not really... They really don't get to say anything, but you still get to see the grief of their loss. And I'm not sure if it's this episode or that episode, but that family... We're not done with that family. And it's going to... Going back to the story of It, one of the things I read when I watched the, the first It film was that all the characters in the town were different forms of, like, abuse or um, abusive, like, uh, parental figures, essentially. And this is just pure, like, grief and despair and, and loss. And that's, that is kind of what this, these families will embody over the next few episodes. And I think so. It does a very good job of trying to capture that. Mm. If yeah, that <laughs> you know, all that. Yeah, all that made sense. Um, circling back to something you said when they showed the little girl who was an eyewitness of Terry crawling out of the woods, not literally, but figuratively with a bloody mouth and looking as if he just had a meal in the woods. Yeah, of course, it's because it's a Stephen King story. I'm like, hmm. Is there a werewolf twist? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. And then I guess there's kind of a disconnect because I don't know what to do with this yet, but he doesn't kill her. Like, yeah, the, the not doing something to me points more towards what is behind all of this 
mm-hmm. in a more evidentiary kind of way than anything else. Because either you're not a very sophisticated criminal or you are really sophisticated and you think you can manipulate this person to not talk, which didn't work because she talked and she's not a good witness, by the way. Those of you <laughs> taking score at home, <laughs> a, a little six-year-old or seven-year-old girl is you know, not a good eyewitness in a, in a crime scene. Um, all the blood all over his van and his clothes, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's mm-hmm. solid evidence. Um, but that part of it points towards something else. And so that I think is pretty interesting. Um, how does all this go on while he's living a family life with kids and a wife and activities and he works at the school? And so in one sense, the story is pretty sophisticated. It's got some complexity to it because unfortunately you hear about people that murder children as being kind of embedded in the community in such a way that the victims are not afraid of them so that they can kind of find their victims easier unfortunately that's kind of what you learn from podcasts like real crime profile so in that way they're kind of leaning into the what what what's been learned about that that whole horrible stuff so yeah, real life stuff. Um, any other plot or theme or anything else in episode one that we have missed? Um, I mean, I think <clears throat> with a show like this, I think what I'm trying to say with the little girl especially is that they showed the cutscene of the little girl seeing Terry Maitland, and that's right. not for the detectives; that's for the audience. Right. And and that's why it's so I think Jason Bateman did such a good job in this episode and really the directors have done so far and the writers is that what they show the audience and what they don't show the audience, I think is incredibly important. And the fact that they would, they basically mounted this case for the viewers to see and see like, no, he, he killed this kid. And so the question is why or what happened or, you know, what caused him to do it. That's really what becomes the mystery over the next, uh, few episodes and then as as we'll get to see you'll see did he actually do it or what you know if he did it then how did he do it and it ends it it does a really good job of asking a lot of questions and putting a lot of doubt into the viewer's head and then it also puts a lot of so ralph's character uh he is pretty adamant that that terry did it. he has all the evidence he did all the work and on top of that he has a personal vendetta where uh, Terry coached his son uh, in baseball, and so they actually have a personal relationship with each other. And so he gets personally involved because he thinks, well, if Terry can do it to this kid, then maybe he did it to my son. And even though his son died of cancer, uh, it's still, you know, that still just haunts you. Where you start thinking, well, maybe he did something to my son to make him, you know, die. And that just adds a little more personal layer. And really, in this episode and the next few episodes, uh, both Jason Bateman and Ben Mendelsohn really just carry this show. And it's, it's even when like the evidence mounting, the police stuff kind of slows down, the mystery slows down, their acting is just so well done that it really just, it keeps you locked in. And really the scenes where Ben Mendelsohn's not acting is probably the boring scenes of, of the show. Cause I really just want him to get back in there. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited for where the show's going it's, I think it's 10 episodes, so we're not even halfway through yet, so we got a long time to go. Um, 
So yeah, definitely looking for more to come and very excited to see how they wrap it up. And I am not re- reading the book, even though I probably, there is a book called Yasar this is based on that you could easily read if you want to figure out the ending. Um, but I'm ch- choosing not to do that because I want to experience the show and see where it goes. I, absolutely. That's exactly how I feel as well. So I think that'll wrap it up for our introduction and initial review of the initial episode of the outsider and uh when we get back together again eric we're gonna have a a world champion in football yeah it's either gonna be the you know pat mahones on top of the world Andy Reid getting his first one or the return of san francisco and the jimmy g's revenge against the new england patriots for trading him yeah if the niners win too they will equal the patriots in number of super bowl victories so now I have to root for the Niners. Yeah, I mean the <laughs> Niners are five and one, and they win again. They'll be six and one, and then goodbye twenty years of playoff victories for the Patriots. You can no longer beat your chest and howl at the wind. You'll be tied with the Niners, and I think maybe the do the Steelers have six or no? I think the Steelers only have five, if I if I remember correctly. Yeah, you are right. They have five. The Cowboys have five. <laughs> But the Cowboys haven't been in there for 25 years now, so they're kind of licking their wounds a little bit. Pardon the (laughs) deliberate attempt to connect it back to the outsider. Um, But for now, this will be our review of The Outsider Episode 1.